we have a really exciting session here tonight. Again, this is George N2APB and uh, along with co-host Joe N2CX. We are here in the chat with the designer session for December 27, 2011 and we're very glad that everybody can join us here this evening. Thanks for bearing with us a little bit. We had a little bit of a server outage this morning but thankfully Jeremy McDermott, our gracious host, benefactor for the server, NH6Z is uh, was able to bring the server back up and we are operational again. So we'll go through a quick uh, rundown of uh, the basic operation for any possible Possible newcomers. We are recording, and this session audio recording is going to go onto the website, onto the TeamSpeak website that we maintain, and as well as the notes and the log session from today. First of all, as I said, this is a co-hosted net control-like session, which means that the in order to keep kind of control over the session, who's speaking when, whenever you see a blue dot on, like as is on an, a my name on the list, whenever that blue light is on, it means somebody's talking. And when that happens, of course, please do not press your push to talk key on your keyboard so as you don't double with anybody. Hopefully also you are using, you have set up your push to talk key as an unused key on your keyboard. We recommend using the right control key for this as this is uh, not too often used in your keyboard because you'll find that you can navigate to other applications on your computer while you're listening here to this uh, TeamSpeak session. And you can be doing your email, you can be going to some of the websites that we're going to be pointing you to. And in doing that, if you happen to press the PTT switch on your keyboard while doing your email, for example, you'll also be transmitting over probably talking over somebody else. So please be aware of that. Don't use Vox. Set it up your uh, your TeamSpeak sessions that you use the PTT and an unused and a lesser used key on your keyboard. You will notice that there is a text sec uh, section in the window, at least on, on the Windows and maybe a couple of other clients below the listing of all of the people. And that, that text session is uh, recording uh, the logins and other types of pointers and links that we might give you. So again, the text section of your window there, as you will find, is going to be very valuable for this evening's uh, session. And we're going to indeed be uh, putting links up there and you'll be able to see some information that we're dealing with. The session is going to go probably about an hour, maybe a little bit longer than an hour. So if it, we, we try to keep it moving along, we're going to cover one major topic today and we'll introduce that in just a moment. But at the end of an hour, we'll start wrapping it up. We're definitely going to be continuing this topic on for a second uh, session next week. We meet every week. This time at 8 p.m. 0100 Zulu on this uh, particular TeamSpeak 3 server in order to discuss uh, technical topics of interest. In the past, we've hit various items about QRP items to buy, homebrewing projects on your bench, things that you have questions about that is intended that you'll have a, a wealth of input here from various designers and guys who are familiar with some of the kits some of the designs and would be able to answer some of your technical questions. We'll do that again today, maybe toward the end, but we'd like to focus today on a specific topic regarding filter design, specifically low-pass filter design. Okay, so what this session is uh, all about tonight, the Chat with the Designer, is actually on the, um, it's summarized on our website, Chat with the Designers. There's a website, see if you can bring this up while we're talking. I put up a web link that uh, hopefully everybody can see. It's uh, http www.njqrp.org stroke teamspeak stroke December 27.html. So if you can see that, and in your uh, browser that you are looking at, that you might be able to click on that hot link and go to that site. We are going to be following the outline that that is on that web page. It's updated since what we sent around last night. We're going to have a lot of fun with this here. We're This is the first inaugural se uh, session for, we have, don't have a good name for it necessarily yet, mini tutorials is what we're envisioning on topics that are of great interest to at least Joe and me and ostensibly to uh, a lot of others as well. 
Uh, tonight's mini tutorial is homebrew filter selection and measurement techniques and we're going to dive into this kind of from the top overview as far as what are filters, what are the LPF, what are the low pass filters. Everybody like some other body parts, everybody's got them but sometimes you don't know exactly how they work or the purpose in their in their use in your transmitters and receivers. We're going to cover the top level and then get into some of the design tools that are useful in selecting the components for the familiar low pass filter that you have in your rigs and on that page on that web page that I uh, put the hot link on for I put a, a copy of the low pass filter for the soft rock many of us here are familiar with the soft rock this happens to be the RX TX 6.3 design so you'll recognize the pi type of connections and topology of that low pass filter and that's what we're going to be discussing as far as why it's used how you select the components impedances characteristics of the band pass or the or the pass band of that filter, the roll-off rate, why is the roll-off rate important, how do you match it to your antennas, and all sorts of things like that. And then, if we're lucky, by the end of the session, we'll have covered some of the basics and introduced some of the tools, even introduced a bit of a design goal that we have at the end of this uh, session, such that you too, if you wished, could assemble the well, seven or eight components that form that filter, and next week we're going to discuss it again. However, this time we're going to talk about measuring the results or the performance of that low-pass filter. We have some surprises uh, in store for everybody. Hope to make this an exciting and interesting uh, session. Okay then, without any further ado, I'm going to toss this over to Master Joe Everhart, N2CX. I will interject from time to time with Joe to maybe ask some questions that are on my mind relative to what he's uh, been saying. And then also, if you too have something to question, to add, to correct, we don't know everything. We're not the definitive resources on uh, uh, of, of all information here. And we certainly would in, enjoy your input and observations along the way. So when we open up the mic for that purpose, please indeed chime in and offer us your own pearls of wisdom and maybe everybody will be able to benefit as well. So Joe, why don't you take it away with uh, kind of set the stage with a wide picture and maybe amplify on what, what I was talking about. Joe, go ahead. All right, instead of amplifying, I think I'll filter it, George, since that is the topic. Yeah, the, the topic uh, basically what we're going to talk about is low-pass filters intended for uh, power amps, um, be the a low power amp or higher power amps. We're uh, we're going to concentrate on things that are in the QRP domain, possibly a little more, but uh, the type of filter you would use with a, uh, a common power amp. Now, when you buy an amplifier, a commercial amplifier, they have banks of filters in them, so you don't have to worry about it. But when you're rolling your own, you need a filter on the output to uh, assure that you need meet FCC specs. Back in the old tube days, uh, there was a Pi network that uh, matched the impedance of the, the tube plates to um, whatever antenna you had. You had a 50 ohm antenna or a uh, uh, just a random wire. There was an adjustable network there, generally a Pi network or some sort of tuned circuit that was link coupled. Well, these days with solid state amplifiers, the amplifiers are basically intended to operate into a 50 ohm system. And uh, you don't have the need, actually, for an adjustable network. Um, there's generally some sort of fixed network there to give you the filtering. The need for the filtering is because the output of an amplifier is not necessarily clean. Hopefully, you've taken care of things like uh, spurious products and the rest of that. 
that are generally generated by the uh, exciter, the rig itself, whereas the power amplifier, if it's well designed and, and properly built, won't generate anything but harmonics. So basically what you need is a, is a filter on the output to suppress those harmonics. Harmonics are multiples of the fundamental output frequency. For example, if you're on uh, 80 meters, 3.5 megahertz, the second harmonic would be 7 megahertz, third harmonic would be 10.5, and so on and so forth. They're integral multiples of the basic frequency. The FCC in uh, part 97.307 calls for a suppression of any output products uh, relative to the, the main power that you're transmitting of 43 dB. What that means is for a 5 watt transmitter, the um, all the harmonics on the uh, spurious products have to be down to less than 250 milliwatts. For a 10 watt rig, half a milliwatt. And even for a 20 watt rig, that's one milliwatt. That's quite a bit of uh, attenuation you need. So you need you need uh, you need to have the a set of filters in your uh, rig to in your app to do this. I just have a line in there, give ability to check as built to software-defined filters. It should be software-designed filters. That's something we'll talk about later in, a, in the actual testing. Practically speaking, you need multiple fil filters to cover the HF bands. Back in the old days, before the, the WARC bands, the, uh, the HF bands were all harmonics of each other, harmonically related. So you needed one filter per band, because obviously, if you're transmitting on 80 meters, uh, your second harmonic would be 40 meters, so you couldn't use two filter, you couldn't use one filter to cover both bands. You could only use one per band. Um, as it turns out, now with the WARC bands, they're kind of in between, so that you can use, if you design the filter properly, you can use one filter for multiple bands and get away with it that. And uh, if you use a sophisticated uh, design technique, such as the one we're going to describe here, generally speaking, one filter will be able to handle one ordinary and one WARC band per filter. Hey, Joe. So instead of needing... Yes, sir. Talking about multiple bands or multiple filters per band, just uh, kind of as a calibration point, some of our listeners here might be familiar with the current soft rock, the Ensemble. The Ensemble uses a filtering, a, a low-pass filter, a set of low-pass filters that are switched on both input and output based on the, the frequency or the, the, the band that is currently being used. The VFO frequency is sensed and for example if you're transmitting on 3.5 megahertz then the switches, the CMOS switches, both for the input and the output of the low-pass filters would engage and thus the signal would be routed through those filters and then on for processing. So automatically that would that would happen. In some other designs there is a manual switch, your, your old big band switch that you have in the front of some of the older rigs before there was automatic band sensing and switching. When you would turn that switch, you would actually flip in different low-pass filters, among other things too. But that's what you know the switching mechanism would be for getting the right filter in based on the band that you're operating on. Yeah, good clarification, George. Thank you. I kind of lost the uh, the forest for the trees there. Yes, indeed. Uh, and to carry that thought even further, the uh, the soft rock radios actually. Uh, do sense uh, some of the filtering they use is unsophisticated. You have difficulty handling a work band and a uh, one of the non-work bands with the same filter. So when they go to the work bands, the uh, uh, the in-between bands, 
They require additional low-pass filler to give you the uh, rejection of harmonics you need. And my point with uh, this discussion will be, if you do the filtering properly with a little, little more uh, little more components, a little more sophistication in what you're doing, you only need one filter to do that. So, um, Good joke. Yes, sir. Again, kind of setting the stage for all the different filters, or at least a couple of the fil filters that are in one's radio typically. We can almost talk about a soft rock type of design. There is an input filter that tends to be a bandpass filter for the receive side to limit the amount of energy that's coming into your radio so your radio doesn't have to work as hard or it keeps some of the extraneous signals out of the input mixer such that when it comes time to actually process the signal you won't have a lot of the extraneous and unwanted signals. And then there's the low pass filter, the filter that's shown on our design page. It's on the transmitter output, and that, as Joe has been talking about, is the is the filtering mechanism that keeps the harmonics and other types of signals that are naturally generated by a transmitter out of this, the actual spectrum that you're, you're trying to get out through the antenna. And while I have the mic here, a reminder to people that I've referred to the text section in the window that's showing, that shows the links and shows everybody that's uh, signed in and, and such. In order to see that, you have to click the QRP homebrewing tab at the bottom. At least on mine, I see two tabs. One is OpenHPSDR server, and the other one is QRP homebrewing. We are in the QRP homebrewing channel, so if you click on that, you will indeed see the links that I'm talking about. So, okay, Joe, back over to you on the on the filters. Thanks. Okay, yeah, good clarification, Joe. And uh, I was busy trying to read other stuff here. I missed your note. Yes, if the FCC limits are the same for all power levels, actually now they are for hands. Uh, the 43 dB uh, meets uh, is required to be met. Uh, it used to be there were different different limits for uh, different power levels, but they've, as the Europeans say, they've harmonized the or harmonized the uh, requirement. If you go above 10 meters, if you go up to VHF, I believe the requirements instead of being 43 dB or 60 dB, which is a well a lot more uh, more work, and it means uh, people don't like to design VHF radios because you need much more sophisticated filters. All right, uh, the low-pass filter, as we've talked about, is intended, as, as you can see from the, the name low-pass, it passes RF below some frequency that you've set, the, the band of interest, and above some reject frequency, it attenuates the signal. So, for example, for a 40-meter signal, you want to pass everything um, below, say, 7.3 megahertz, which is the top end of the 40-meter band. You want to pass that with minimum attenuation, and you want to attenuate everything that's above uh, 14 megahertz, 14 megahertz and above. Practically speaking, there is some roll-off in between, an in-between area where the attenuation will start to increase as you get above the, uh, the pass band, the desired frequency. And uh, how quickly it rolls off is, is a matter of uh, some interest in the design. In the pass band, where you want to pass a signal, a rule of thumb is that uh, you want to be as small as possible. Commercial designers often go for several tenths of a dB, but practically speaking, half a dB is only about 6%. So if you can, stand, if you can withstand 6% attenuation in the pass band, that's not too bad. But the FCC says you have to be uh, 43 dB down. You have to reject everything 43 dB in the uh, where you're not transmitting. And indeed, if it is harmonics and... Uh, uh, that will be multiples of your operating frequency to reject them by 43 dB. And as I mentioned earlier, you generally need different low-pass filters for each handband, except in the case of some of the work bands. I think I'm going to stop at this point. You can look at the stuff George posted on the webpage, and you can see a, uh, a filter there, which is a simple low-pass filter. This is a uh, 
two-section, three-section uh, low-pass filter. This would be one of the unsophisticated filters that does not have the sharp roll-off characteristics. And I'll talk about that a little bit more, but it's a good filter, but you have difficulty with this few sections getting the, the sharp roll-off where you have low attenuation in band and high attenuation for the harmonics. So I think I'll throw it back to George and uh, we'll go around the group and see if we have more, uh, see if we have questions on, uh, on this topic. Go ahead, George. Thanks, Joe. Something that doesn't uh, always come to mind is that there is an, an insertion loss. There's an inherent loss of the signal level that's going through the system when you insert a, uh, because of the low-pass filter that you insert. In other words, you, you kind of said it. Um, is there not a 6, did you say a 6 dB loss that's typical? Um, the 6 dB reduction signal level, um, even of the signals that are passing through the, you know, the pass band of the, of the filter? No, actually what I said was you try to make that as small as possible. And the goal here is half a dB, which is 6%. An interesting thing, and, and again, coming back to the soft rock that many of us are familiar with, on the, and, and I might not quite have this right, but the receive, if you follow the antenna signal coming in, uh, from the antenna, it goes through the the uh, the transmitter's LPF low pass filter in reverse, and then it comes out of that on on the transmitter side of that and goes down through some switching over to the filter uh, to the to the bandpass filtering that it's on the R what's what's it called the RX amp I call it the RX amp it's the uh, the receive bandpass uh, filter. So there are two filters that are done in parallel, uh, in series, that ostensibly provide a more f complete filtering of the signal. It might be more just for convenience, but in this case, it is going through two filters. Uh, can you comment on that, Joe? Yeah, um, indeed. The, the low-pass filter is primarily intended to uh, keep spurious outputs from the transmitter from uh, causing problems. But uh, practically speaking, it doesn't hurt to have that in series with a bandpass filter for the receiver. You might ask why you don't use a bandpass filter for the transmitter also. You certainly can. Problem is it gets uh, much more complicated, much more sophisticated. And uh, in order to pass a, uh, a relatively wide band of frequencies, say 7 to 7.3 megahertz, uh, with low loss and then to uh, have a, a great attenuation outside that band, uh, it's not bad to do for small signals. When you're talking about uh, running some power through it, it becomes a real bear to design. So the two do kind of help each other. But uh, the receiver, yeah, since it's uh, the receive signals are only low powers, you can use a, a less sophisticated filter and still get away with it. Very good. And also a comment, um, perhaps it's obvious, but it doesn't exactly strike you between the eyes at first. Filters are bidirectional. The, the filtering occurs in either direction, as illustrated by what I was just uh, going through. The receive signal coming in from the antenna goes through the low-pass filter of the um, of the soft rocks LPF in reverse direction from what the transmit signal goes through. But it's the same filtering effect. Okay, um, we'll take a break here and open it up for questions. If anybody is uh, either snowed or incredibly bored because of the uh, the level that we're starting off with, please let us know and uh, we can adjust and answer some of the questions. Uh, my question is uh, that 6% uh, related to the insertion loss, 
Uh, does that mean that if you were using this low pass filter with a 100 watt transmitter that six watts of the power would be dissipated in the low pass filter before uh, the low pass filter out output goes to the antenna? No, it wouldn't necessarily be uh, dissipated in the filter. It would be reflected. It would be reflected back by having a, a slight mismatch there. Primarily, uh, I'm sorry, you're right. You're right. I'm getting my thoughts confused here. Uh, that is that is correct, and that's one of the reasons why the low-pass filter, you can get away with it, but with a band-pass filter, you're going to have more loss, and the components tend to get heavier. For a 100-watt uh, transmitter, that would be uh, 6 watts, which still would require some hefty components, but uh, for a QRP rig, you know, it's a matter of content uh, that 600 milliwatts maximum. Generally, the components you use will be hefty enough to take that. They'll be distributed over several components. Okay, Rick, you had a question. Go ahead. Uh, yes, I think I actually kind of answered it. Uh, I was wondering whether the, uh, the power that's fed in there and partially dissipated uh, because of the natural losses in the circuit uh, was evenly distributed amongst the various components that you show there, or did they tend to be a couple of places where you need a, a high current uh, capacity and other places where you can use relatively uh, low-level components? Okay, yeah. Um, it is a combination, actually, of reflection and, uh, and dissipation in the components. Generally speaking, the, uh, most of the dissipation will be in the inductors because they tend to be lower Q than the capacitors. Unless you're using really crummy capacitors, they'll be, uh, their Q will be several times that in the inductors. And uh, uh, in a symmetrical uh, filter, attenuation in the inductors will tend to be equivalent, uh, the same in each. There will be there will some be mismatch loss because of uh, the filter characteristics, which uh, would lessen the entire dissipation. The thing that I was saying that was really interesting about the question was that uh, uh, there are power considerations. There are, because of the amount of power or current, actually, that's going through the series inductors in this case, there's also voltage types of uh, concerns and component selection for the filters. Yeah, I didn't uh, didn't get into that at all. That's a practical consideration. Once you have the topology defined, the components, component values in terms of inductance and capacitance selected, then indeed you do have to worry about the uh, power handling capability of the component. In general, the loss in the inductors will um, is the the thing where you dissipate power. The ripple, the the uh, inherent loss in the filter has two components, as I said. Some is due to the uh, inert loss in the inductors, which will be rather low uh, if you use high inductors, and some will be reflection loss because of the uh, rippling attenuation characteristics, I'll put it that way, of, of a uh, practical filter. Uh, apropos of that, if you've got a, a badly adjusted or badly designed power amplifier, you're going to be, if you're putting out considerable uh, harmonic content, all of that harmonic content also has to be dissipated in the filter in some way, otherwise it's not doing anything, right? Yeah, not necessarily dissipated. It could be uh, reflected back to the amplifier. And I think in the general case, that would be, uh, that would be the case. If you were very badly, if you had a lot of uh, spurious, indeed, you could burn up the filters. That would be a bad thing. 
Alrighty, I think uh, that, that probably answered uh, Rick's question. The uh, an interesting uh, corollary to the, all the, to this part of the discussion is that, and Joe, you know this, as we were going through filter component selection for at least the for parts of this the SDR cube uh, low pass filter, as well as the RF power amp that's coming up for the SDR cube, I was uh, considering use of surface mount components, surface mount inductors and capacitors appropriately rated that would be able to handle uh, either the power um, or deliver the right amount of Q. Um, there might be a tendency to try to use SMT components more frequently instead of winding those darn toroids. Can you comment on, on those components and and the, the trade-off that comes about from instead giving a try to surface mount components? Yeah, certainly. Um, the surface back components can be good at uh, low power levels and in broadband filters. When you're trying to design narrow filters, the loaded queue, the operating queue of the uh, device, the need for it comes higher and higher as you have filters either with narrower bandpass in terms of a bandpass filter or sharp roll-off in, in terms of a, a low-pass filter or a high-pass filter. And in order to minimize the the dead loss, the dissipation in the uh, inductors, you need to have uh, high conductors. Generally speaking, if you use toroids, you need to use inductors that have a, a low inherent loss, high Q, at least 10 times or so the uh, operating Q in the circuit. Generally speaking, except for very low inductance values, surface mount inductors don't have those qualities. Uh, there are some capacitors uh, in in low capacitance levels that will have uh, low Q and could potentially be used for uh, power low pass filters. But uh, you have to start worrying about the operating voltage level of the capacitor and the uh, current handling capacity. If the capacitors are small, physically small, they tend to have both a low operating voltage and low uh, series current that they can handle. So quite often, except for very low power applications, you have to use the uh, more common leaded components in uh, power low pass filters. Okay, that's that's uh, that's good to know and and helpful tips on it. Again, at the end of the session, I'm going to we're going to suggest that we uh, tackle a um, a simple low pass filter design for those that are interested. We can you can do as just as Joe and I will be doing between now and next section, and that is to um, actually determine the right inductance, determine the right filter, uh, the capacitors and the voltage and the Q in order to uh, to come up with the design. And then, uh, again, I'll, I'll let a little bit of the cat out of the bag toward the end of the session as far as like what we're going to do with it next. But that's a useful thing to, uh, uh, to keep in mind, of course, is uh, the actual components are going to be able to, uh, you know, have you achieve the, the filter, uh, the ripple, stop band attenuation, the roll-off rate, and so on. Joe, can you address the uh, topic of uh, elliptical, the, the term elliptical, and uh, whether it's five-pole or seven-pole elliptical? What does that mean? Well, that can get awfully complicated in mathematics. Basically, it has to do with the uh, underlying topology of the filter. That has to do with the mathematics that define the uh, filter configuration. Things like uh, Bessel filters, Butterworth filters, and Gaussian filters use a 
a simple, for Lopez folders at any rate, is a, a simple ladder configuration similar to the one that you showed on the web page there, where they'll have uh, alternating capacitors and inductors. Capacitors going to ground and then inductors between the capacitors to form a ladder network. The elliptical fillers, be they Chebyshev or Cowler or any of the other, I think there's uh, several other configurations, they will use multiple components for each of the legs. Uh, quite often, they, they use capacitors going from the, the uh, from ground to the iterating points of the filter, but the um, the series legs that are above ground will often be composed of a capacitor and an inductor in parallel. And what this does is, to, in mathematical terms, it puts uh, some poles, some attenuation points in the filter characteristic. And if they're controlled properly, they allow you to, to uh, roll off the uh, unwanted uh, components frequency components more in a better way, a more controlled fashion, a steeper uh, roll-off curve. As for the number of elements in, in the filter, generally speaking, the more the more poles, the more elements you have, the more legs you have in the filter, the more attenuation you'll have, the more roll-off characters, but potentially also the more uh, uh, attenuation you'll have in the uh, passband. So it's kind of a balance of uh, what you do to, uh, to get it. You want to use as few components, as few legs as necessary, but you have to use enough to get the uh, desired result. Doing it by hand from filter tables or whatever else, the very, very tedious things. Early on in my career, I had to do it that way. These days, software makes it very easy. You basically specify the attenuation you want and the configuration you want, for example, an elliptical filter, and the, the program itself will quite often choose the number of elements you need so that um, there are fewer things you have to worry about. Good point. Software indeed helps us out an awful lot these days with the canned programs, and we're going to touch on those maybe in just a moment. Another aspect that we could chat about briefly, it's always been intriguing to me, is the filter impedance for the input and for the output. It doesn't always have to be 50 ohms. In fact, sometimes a designer's technique in matching two different stages or matching an output uh, amplifier to a specific antenna will indeed have two different kinds of uh, two different impedance values uh, differing from the input to output. And um, oftentimes, the, if not always, the, the software that we're using to compute the, the values for the filter components takes this into consideration. Joe, can you comment on, on the input and output impedances of, an, of a low-pass filter, such as we see there on the uh, our, our designer's uh, webpage there? Sure. Yeah, they, uh, as George points out, it is possible to uh, indeed have a different input and output impedance so that you combine the filtering characteristics of the filter, passing the frequencies you want and attenuating the ones you don't want with impedance matching. In some uh, simple QRP rigs, that was done so that you could simplify the transmitter. An output, uh, tra a transistor might have an output impedance of, of 8 ohms, and you went to a uh, antenna that was 50 ohms. You could absorb the matching network into the uh, low-pass filter. The output, output low-pass filter says you can achieve both in one, uh, one small flow. It's possible to do that, and the software generally handles it very well. It's often easier, if you can, however, to work in, in a system that's uh, always one of these, for example, 50 ohms. The um, component values tend to be easier to work with rather than going from uh, very high impedances to low impedances. And uh, 
if you're doing things in quantity, economies of scale help you because you'll have more of the same component component values in a symmetrical filter um, than you would if you had a filter that uh, had eight ohms on one end and 50 ohms at the other end. You'd uh, multiply the number of components uh, needed to do it. Um, for one-off stuff or stuff around the shack, it's not a big deal. But if you're building a bunch of them, it can be a pain. It can also be a nuisance to uh, test them. You need special test facilitation to do that. And what comes to mind, too, and maybe another reference that uh, I could point people to, I don't even know if it's still available these days, uh, maybe in its second edition or maybe not at all. There's a, a book that Paul Harden, uh, NA5N, put out some time ago called Data Book for Homebrewers and QRPers. And uh, it's something that I, gosh, I bought it some, uh, oh, it had to be more than 10 years ago. And uh, I've, I've used it every, almost uh, almost every, I don't know, on every project for sure and, and very frequently. And in that section, or in the book, is a section concerning toroids and low-pass filters and other common topology filters that, uh, again, if you don't have the handbook, such as I referenced in uh, in the text section just a moment ago, the handbook has a great section on low-pass filters. This book here uh, has a wonderful section and very practical use of uh, or ways to select and um, create your low-pass filters, and especially for toroid designs. Uh, Joe, on the, uh, as far as toroids, I mean, toroids are, we, we all love toroids. We all love winding toroids. I think many numb fingers come about from winding toroids, just about as many numb body parts come about from drinking, I think. So, but uh, regardless, the specifying the kind of core that is used for these, these um, inductors that we use in our filters the size of the core and the type of the material. Um, we can definitely look it up in a chart, but in general, is there a guide that you can uh, just kind of mention as far as uh, what toroids are used for in, in what cases and what sizes are better for what power levels? Yeah, some general rules of thumb. The, uh, the, most two, the two most common uh, cores used for filters at HF are the, uh, uh, I'm trying to remember the manufacturer, Amidon Associates, I believe it is. There's a red core and a yellow core. The red-colored core has a higher permeability. It's good at lower frequencies. I believe a half to uh, 10 megahertz generally is where it has its highest Q. And the, um, the yellow core is good from something like 5 to 30 megahertz. It has a lower permeability but lower loss. They're not hard and fast rules, but uh, they're both generally usable in the uh, HF spectrum. As far as size goes, if you're talking about um, uh, a filter in the 50 watt category, 25 to 50 watts, um, you'll need to use a filter that is a, a toroid core that is something like uh, a half to 0.68 inches in diameter. It would be a T50 or a T68. For lower power applications, generally the T25, which is a uh, quarter inch core, and the T37 have enough capability to uh, to handle the, the uh, output levels in most filters, the power levels. I will look up and include in the notes from this, uh, after this session, a um, toroid uh, uh, computation site from a German uh, whose call letters escape me at the moment. But it has a calculator in there that you can plug in a given core type uh, and get the, the core type and inductance needed 
and it will tell you which core to use for what frequency range and the operating power level so that uh, you're operating where the, the um, characteristics of the core are optimized for low loss and you're not overstressing the core with too much power. Kind of an interesting um, offshoot of that is that uh, when you're winding your toroids, you of course can fine tune the inductance that uh, that is ultimately uh, created. For example, if your design calls for uh, for a capacitor, you know you run the computations and it comes out that you need a capacitor that is uh, 0 0.236 uh, Henry's. 0.236, not too common, and also an inductor that is maybe 124 microhenries. 124, again, is not too common. So a technique in design is that you fix your capacitor to is uh, the closest value that is commonly, commonly achievable, achievable with 10% uh, values, which in this case might be uh, uh, 0.2. Or maybe or 0.2 whatever a 10 a 20 10 or 20 percent capacitor is and um, and then you recompute to come up with the exact inductance based in that new capacitor and then of course with your handy dandy aade lc meter you can measure the, or, or any other inductance meter you can measure the inductance on a turn by turn basis of the toroid that you're winding and thus you can come up with a an inductor that matches the capacitors that you're using in the design. So this is another way of saying that computations, whether it be software by you know software application or your own you know running through computations in a basic program that you might have or just a, an equation by hand, is always a first step. It's a first order pass, and then it requires oftentimes a little bit of tweaking in order to get it to be just what you're uh, after from a frequency response, from a roll-off perspective. And uh, filter component selection probably could be an entire session all unto itself when you consider all the different parameters that are important for a, for a component in a filter, be it voltage, working voltage, current capacity, Q, and the actual value of the, uh, of the component itself. Do I have that about right, Joe? Yeah, yeah that's a pretty good overview. One thing I want to add, uh, I'm not sure you mentioned it, but others talk about it. In an inductor, the Q is uh, a toroidal inductor with a, a uh, ferrite or powdered iron core. The inductance is fixed. If you move the turns around, as some do, to tune a, an inductor, you're not really changing the inductance, you're changing the effective inductance because you're changing the stray capacitance uh, inherent in the, uh, between the uh, turns of the, of the inductor. So that the net effect makes it look like a different inductor. We're just changing really the uh, parallel capacitance. Yep, fine tuning. While we're thinking about it, and that's sort of like the nature of the discussion here, when we build low-pass filters using toroids on our QRP projects, there's often a tendency to lie the toroid down flat on the printed circuit board. Maybe that printed circuit board has a ground plane. Maybe it doesn't. And then some people have been have been known to kind of goop it up with hot glue and keep it down and all of that. Can you comment on the uh, the benefits or detriments to that approach? I'm not sure how much I want to get into that. <laughs> That's almost like uh, arguing religion. It's I have found that uh, standing a toroid up 
um, gives you lower loss. I don't like laying the uh, toroid down on a conductive metal surface. Uh, for one thing, it, it vastly increases the uh, straight capacitance to ground by having the, uh, the turns laying against the ground, whereas by standing it up, you minimize extra straight capacitance. It's my feeling, although I haven't done careful measurements, that you also increase the loss by laying it against a metal surface. As far as uh, putting hot glue or something, hold the turns in place is generally not necessary. You might want to use a little bit of uh, hot glue or a non-contaminating RTV, not the common uh, RTV that smells like vinegar, but a non-contaminating non RTV to hold the turret in place. But uh, unless you have a VFO or something where you absolutely can't stand any uh, minute variation in the inductance, there's no need to goop the uh, turns of the uh, toroid down to the core. If you do, the best thing to use is uh, what's called Q-dope, which is a polystyrene dissolved in a uh, solvent. Um, but the downside of doing that is once you've captivated the turns in place, you'll play hell trying to ever uh, move the turns to uh, retweak re the inductance ever in the future. And it's kind of equivalent to potting the whole darn thing and, and kind of making any adjustments, replacements, or uh, debugging, uh, troubleshooting, uh, any any easier at all, too. Alrighty. Um, <clears throat> why don't we kind of open it up here to questions? We're kind of uh, coming to the hours end session, uh, uh, to the point of the of the end of the session. Uh, we have maybe one more type of uh, topic to to get into a little bit, but I wanted to open it up here before. Anybody has to leave. Are there any questions? And, and remind you that questions kind of make the world go round here. Nothing is really too basic. And maybe we've been saying some things that are not overly clear to you. Um, please speak up and, and let us know. And then, um, you know, we can kind of kill a couple of birds with, uh, with one answer. I would just like to thank you for uh, providing this forum. <clears throat> I'm sorry I've got cedar fever right now. I can't uh, talk very well. But I, I'm, I want you to know how much I enjoy it. I hope we can use something like this in the AQRP uh, environment. Thank you very much for your work. Bye. Well, thank you, John. Really, really nice to have you with us. Uh, you, you might, your ears might have been burning um, in the previous couple, three sessions that we've had. We've always mentioned the AQRP work and the and the uh, uh, the groundbreaking work that you and Case and Milt have been doing, and and really enjoyed. Uh, I enjoy following the projects there. So where and when you can, please join us here and would love to have, uh, just as an aside, <clears throat> Joe and I have been considering having guest um, guest designers, for lack of anything right now, just guest people that would uh, be present for a given forum and uh, pick a topic of their choice and kind of elaborate on it a little bit, have discussion among a couple of people while others listen. Well, you know how that goes. So you just kind of get some ideas spread around, get some questions of your own answered perhaps along the way, and have some fun along the way too. So thanks a lot for joining us, John. I really appreciate that. What um, what Joe and I were hoping to do, and I'm, in one way or another we will, is we're going to suggest a certain filter and we're going to suggest that uh, we want to have a filter that, you know, is a cutoff of, uh, oh, I don't know, maybe 8 megahertz. And it can handle a certain amount of power. We want to have certain characteristics with that filter. And then 
suggest that there's a couple of software design tools that are available that would enable you to take and plug in the parameters for the, the specifications for this design in order to come up with a, um, a set of uh, components, much like that uh, Softrock LPF topology or layout that's shown on a design page, and then uh, actually build it. Because that's exactly what Joe and I will be doing, such that next week when we come, we're going to have pictured on the web page and in our each of our hands is a, uh, a filter on a little piece of uh, copper-clad board built up Manhattan style. A low-pass filter designed with a certain impedance and a certain cutoff frequency, roll-off rate, ripple type, basic chubby chaff, or whatever kind of a, a filter design we might want. And then we're going to measure it. So we'll be talking next time about actually taking a filter such as this and uh, measuring it with various tools. Maybe it's with an N2PK uh, VNA, or maybe it's with a simple lashed up type of uh, sweeping frequency and measurement combination that uh, we'll probably introduce to, uh, to this group next week as well. And it will enable, will enable you, you in some fashion that, uh, you know, that, that you can do on your own bench to actually see how your filter performs based on the uh, uh, the characteristics that we specified up front. So, Joe, maybe just a uh, just kind of elaborate on that a little bit, perhaps, and uh, a quick intro to the tools at our disposal. Yeah, there's some great uh, tools available for filter design. As I alluded to earlier, earlier in my career, um, I used the Zverev uh, filter design book, which is you know several inches thick has an enormous number of tables in there for calculating filters. And, um, you know, it, it worked. You uh, did a lot of handwork to uh, do things, but there are three filter tools that I use for RF filters that are very, very handy. The first is the AADE filter designer. I'm not sure if George has that uh, on the website, but I'm sure we'll have it in the notes eventually. He's the, uh, this is Neil Hecht, the guy who makes the uh, AADC, AADELC meter, George alluded to earlier, has the AADE filter designer. It's a uh, Windows program, allows you to um, define a filter configuration, Chebyshev, uh, Cower, Butterworth, the other uh, uh, configurations, uh, and to plug in numbers for the attenuation you can scan in band and the rejection you want, the uh, in band frequencies and the uh, frequency where you want to roll off. And the thing will calculate a, tapo a, a uh, number of poles, number of elements in the thing, in the filter configuration, and show you a, a uh, schematic diagram of what it is, what the component values are. And also, it will perform a, an analysis of this and show you graphically on the screen what the uh, filter characteristics are. Now, it does this with standard component values. However, it will allow you to use standard toroids, and it will calculate the uh, number of turns on a toroid and which toroid core you need to, um, to give you the proper inductance. Um, this won't be perfect because, as George pointed out, it won't have uh, the standard value capacitors. But if you want to use standard value capacitors, it also has the ability we're going to take these component values to store them off and then to, to tweak the capacitor values and the inductors uh, values manually so that you can see the effects on the performance. 
so that you can tweak it to use standard value components. There's another popular uh, program called Elsate uh, from an outfit called Ton Software that is available in, with uh, the disk that comes with the AWR handbook these days. It has some similar characteristics to the uh, the ADE filter designer. It is it's a different environment. Some of the terminology is different, and you're limited, I think, to seven section filters. Because the student version of their several hundred dollar commercial design, but it's a good one also. Uh, you can download it uh, on the web. For a quick hit at a filter, you can pull up the uh, Tom Software. SCV filter, Sierra Coco uh, Victor filter, which stands for Standard Component Value Filter. This is kind of a condensed designer. What it does, it'll give you a, a quick hit to come up with a filter with uh, standard component values, so that you can you can uh, use this as a starting point then to uh, tweak the operating frequency and whatever else get the characteristics you want. There are three handy filters, and I intend to use them this next week in doing the designs for the filter George was talking about, and uh, we'll give the results. And we will have the uh, links to these in the, the notes that uh, go up on the webpage when this session is over. Good stuff, Joe. And if anybody else has uh, has some insight to filter design tools that uh, that you've successfully used in the past, that you enjoy using, find quite uh, attractive, uh, please either point them out here or get them over to Joe and or me. You know, we can kind of update our web page and, and keep everybody current with uh, what, you, what you find valuable. I think, Joe, the, uh, what we want to do is, instead of just kind of shooting from the hip, unless you've got something on your hip right now, instead of shooting from the hip and sort of saying, yeah, let's have a, let's design a 40-meter filter cutoff uh, at, uh, at 8 megahertz, and yada, 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 let's give some thought to something that's going to be useful and something that's going to be achievable. And let's just say in the next day or two, uh, come back to the website that we've got. And again, see the link that... Uh, the, the team speak link for December 27 that I gave at the top of the sec uh, of the session. Check that link uh, and web page to see what uh, uh, what we've selected and what Joe and I are going to be building. And then if you would like, and it would be really educational and fun, I think, uh, if you could indeed you know find the capacitors and wind the toroids uh, out of your junk box and build it up by next week's session. We'll, we'll be going over some techniques that will give you some really good insight to that filter's performance. Then how well does it meet the design spec that was laid out? Maybe we can kind of critique uh, uh, critique it along the way there. And who knows, maybe even for those attending here, maybe we'll have uh, a little uh, component set uh, for mere cost of the mailing charges. You know, you can get into your own hands if you don't have the components yourself, and you can give it a try yourself and see how it looks and works. So, Joe, other items that maybe we didn't hit yet tonight that we wanted to from a from a more generic sense and a top-level view, we've, we've kind of gone through what the filter is, why we use it, why it's important to use it, how everybody has one, what the effects of not having the right filter in place are, uh, what the topology or the construction of a simple filter is. We've shown that on our website, the, the impedance of it, the roll-off factor, the attenuation along the way. And the only thing maybe that we haven't really discussed is... Uh, 
maybe somewhat obvious, but where it goes in the receivers that we deal with. Either that or something else of generic nature, Joe, that we haven't touched on? Well, the one thing I had intended to talk about that I didn't was, uh, yeah, and, and I think uh, some block diagrams would, would be quite useful to give some uh, give a picture to what we're talking about. Block diagram to describe some of these things to show where a filler is used in where the filters are used in, in various radio configurations. The one thing I neglected to mention was another reason I like toroids. Toroids tend to be self-shielding. The core keeps the magnetic field close to the uh, contained within it so that it doesn't um, radiate around the board. When you use air core coils, you can make air core coils that are uh, very high Q. They tend to be large, but one of the uh, real big handicaps is that if you're trying to build a filter with air, air core coils, you have to orient them very carefully so that um, their magnetic field and the capacitive field between the electrostatic field doesn't couple from one coil to the next, or you will ruin any attenuation characteristics and any tuning you wanted. Whereas the uh, toroid cores tend to be self-shielding, and they really don't run into those problems unless you're laying the, the toroid cores smack dab against each other. As I say, uh, as the other some or applications-oriented info, I think a couple block diagrams and a um, few sketches would show uh, show some of the concepts we've been talking about uh, in a more instructive way that uh, doesn't actually come through in the words. I was just thinking as we were talking about the, the whole business about filters, I realized that uh, if you're interested in uh, digital signal processing and uh, software designed radio, the filters are virtually the only component where you actually need physical components uh, to build uh, an SDR. Uh, you've got to have the filters at the front end and you've got to have some filters at the back end after you've come back out of the PC. But all you need is filters in the computer to build almost anything electronic. I, I think I understand what you're saying, and I probably would agree that the, the computers and specifically DSP processing is indeed able to perform filtering, but the kind of filters that we're talking about here, as you rightly point out, are those that are, are um, best put uh, to use, of course, in physical, in, in, as physical components, as they are either processors conditioning the signal that's coming into the radio or conditioning the signal that's going out of the radio. Um, so in general, um, I, I think I would agree on that. Does anybody else have any other questions or, or points like Rick to, uh, uh, to to bring up here as we kind of wrap this session up? Is this kind of of interest uh, to you in this, this particular um, this thread that we're working with the filters? Is this a topic that is of interest uh, to people? We're getting a couple of yeses uh, by means of the text uh, screen. So thank you very much for that feedback. Okay, good. What we normally do is uh, at the end of each of these sessions here is kind of wrap it up. Uh, we've wrapped up the thread that we've talked about. And I thank Joe uh, a lot for offering his uh, insight and overview of the different uh, aspects of filter design. And understand that this is just scratching the surface. There's behind every word that's spoken just about there's, uh, there's a ton of of detail that we gloss over and one could find argument or pick a fight with just about any any point that we made here but the topic is or the purpose is to 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 address the topic in a generic sense to start off with and then ultimately we'll drill down as we will next week we'll drill down with some specific examples some specific tools um, to see what the performance is and actually show how to measure the performance that a filter is uh, given us oftentimes i don't know about you but oftentimes I put together these circuits and call it a wing and a prayer. I, I follow a circuit diagram from QST or from someplace on the web. If it kind of works, 
that's as far as it goes for me. I'm assuming that a designer someplace somewhere has put enough thought into that uh, filter component selection and where he places the the filter in the radio, uh, the shielding, the uh, the type of components that he's using from a cue perspective, that somebody else has been given some a lot of thought to that. Oftentimes, though, it's fun to go back and actually look at something you build and see if you can figure out the areas that it can be optimized, because frankly, not all the time. Things are not always optimized that you see on the web or in, in magazines. They might work for that designer. They might work uh, first off, and he doesn't have time to go back and optimize it. I think uh, John uh, K. 5JHF is uh, is a good proponent of this. He he finds a he finds a topic or a design or an approach to a solution that somebody else might have started, but then he uses some other tech other um, components, other arrangements, orientation of the components or circuits. Explore the boundaries of that design, and ultimately ends up with a more tailored, more um, more efficient, more performance-oriented design along the way. Um, a, a cheaper or less expensive and more uh, better uh, better one serving one for his purpose. That's what we'd like to do here. So the more that we know about filters, in this case here today, filters, the better it's going to have us understand the radios that we deal with every day, and the better it's going to have us kind of implement some components. A lot of us, myself included, take a, a block diagram from here, take a circuit from that uh, HW8, uh, take a power supply from this place, and kind of patch it all together into your own little unique design. If you understand these, uh, um, some of these components, uh, these blocks, a little bit better, it'll help you make a better radio in the process, even taking that approach. Okay, um, oftentimes at the end of these sessions, what we do is wrap up offering the mic here to anybody who wants to to kind of chime in to ask a question about the topic tonight or some other topic that's on their mind since they've got a whole lot of brain power here. I looked down the list. There's a lot of smart people joining us here tonight. And I thank you very much, every one of you, for doing that. But are there any questions that might come to mind before we wrap up tonight? Uh, open mic, go ahead. It looks as though in uh, the future sessions, uh, as we keep working on filters, that there would be a big benefit to having us uh, able to see uh, diagrams, circuit diagrams, and response diagrams, and so forth. Does TeamSpeak 3 have the ability for uh, yourself or anyone else to uh, put up uh, a diagram in one of the unused windows here? Yeah, I don't think it does, but I'm I'm going to be exploring that. I kind of made a mental note to do that. Minimally, what we can do is I can sit here and I can... Uh, I can post things very dynamically to a web page and get some updated diagrams to a web page. The trick for you, for all attendees, would be to see if you are able to handle, you know, a web browser and this TeamSpeak session client at the same time. Personally, I've got a large screen here at my station, and I have half the screen devoted for the TeamSpeak screen, and then I have the other half devoted for the uh, the web page that we've been referring to that has our outline, uh, the discussion outline on it. So if this is something that people can use, that's certainly something we'll use. It's not quite interactive for everybody, but it at least will get, you know, by the time Joe had finished talking about a block diagram, I could have sketched something up and, and had it there for everybody to see just to uh, have easier understanding of what uh, the point is being made. But that's a that's a good point, Rick. I'm sure there are other clients and other types of conferencing tools and such that might be able to do the job for us. But so far, TeamSpeak is doing a good job for us here. We may indeed be staying with it. So finding an alternate way to display diagrams would be a goal. Okay, Joe, did you want to kind of wrap it up? Sure. Um, actually, you did most of the wrap up yourself. But uh, yeah, um, what we discussed here tonight was um, some aspects of uh, designing 
picked a low-pass device for um, uh, intended for uh, amplifiers for amateur radio to uh, to keep us legal to um, some of the numbers you need to keep in mind to make them practical and uh, to meet the legal requirements, at least in a broad brush sort of way. Uh, very briefly spoke about uh, the topologies used, uh, the sorts of uh, configurations of components that are used, some of the, uh, the applications, and indeed, uh, as was pointed out by, um, I believe it was um, looking for his name, Rick, uh, questions about uh, component stresses and uh, dissipation of the components, uh, some of the requirements there. It was a topic I hadn't included in the discussion, but it is definitely uh, an important thing to uh, to discuss. And uh, what we're leading toward, kind of a, uh, a team uh, mind meld here, where we can all look at a particular filter design that we'll present in the next day or two. We can all look at... Uh, uh, how to achieve that, what component values to use, and what uh, circuit configuration to use with some free software tools from the web. And um, then we can compare notes on uh, what we've come up with, each of us individually, and uh, what the performance of those builders is. And then ultimately, in the weeks to come, we'll go through some measurement techniques to uh, to look at the filters and actually do physical measurements to see how close uh, what the software tells us we need, how close that is to what the, the real performance is, and then we can discuss how to tweak the filters to um, to get the performance we need. And ultimately, in the end, we're also going to dis discuss a uh, um, reasonably simple uh, project that will allow us to uh, measure filters in a dynamic way and to give a, a, uh, an accurate and um, easy to understand uh, picture, uh, if you will, of what the filter looks like. So uh, it's a kind of a long-term project. We've started it here with a discussion of filters. We're going to go through some practical examples next week and then uh, go into some uh, measurement techniques to see how uh, reality uh, compares to what the uh, computed values are, and uh, eventually how to uh, tweak what the computer uh, gives us with what's measured and uh, come up with something that uh, meets our end uh, desires. Perfect, Joe. That's a good, uh, that's a good uh, forecast in our directions. Also, we're not going to always be focusing, be focusing on filters. On we're going to be um, looking at other components that frankly interest us, but again, they might be interesting to others as well. Things like audio amplifiers, like maybe a stereo amplifier, a stereo audio amplifier that can handle I and Q um, and the optimum settings and for those particular components. Uh, maybe an, an, input, uh, an input amplifier, a receive preamp, if you will, is another thing that is of interest. Um, things, the technical focuses on some design equipment. Uh, both Joe and I have a have a, an extreme interest in producing effective design equipment for a bench. Things that allow us to measure different components and circuit characteristics, such that we can indeed characterize it. Much as we've been talking about here, the more you know your circuit, especially once it's built and operating, you can effectively use it. So things like that are in our future. 
And the nature of this discussion group is going to be talking about things like that. I, I glanced down the list here of, of people. I thank every one of you for attending. Um, hope you will come back. I, I really look to uh, uh, the designers among us to maybe to, to speak up and chime in. And I see John, NU3E. Thank you for joining us here, John. This is great to have you with us. Uh, Paul, AK1P. Really nice to hear from you, to see you there, Paul. Thank you. Uh, Joe, uh, KC2VGL. Um, uh, Dave, 87JT, um, along with Milt, W8NUE from the new PSK uh, modem. And I probably missed uh, other, other designers, and my apologies. But um, it, it's really good to have everybody here. It's our intention to provide this kind of an open technical forum for this kind of discussion. It's not always going to be Joe and me yapping, but uh, we certainly would like to drive the discussion toward understanding some of the components that we use every day in our ham radio lives on the bench a little bit better, and then to provide some information around for everybody to use it. Uh. I just wanted to mention uh, another newcomer who I see is KK6MC, Dr. Megacycle. Uh, perhaps uh, Jim is a very good speaker. He's done an excellent job at some of the uh, uh, QRP forums I've seen. Maybe we can twist his arm in the future and uh, get him to uh, pick up a session for us as well. Sounds sounds really good. I would I would like that for sure. And I didn't uh, didn't even notice it there, Jim. Thanks an awful lot for joining us. You're on mute now, but uh, appreciate you joining us. Maybe let's talk afterwards, and we can figure out uh, ways for many people to contribute. Okay, we'll wrap it up then for this evening's session of chat with the designers. Thank you very much, everyone, for joining. We will meet again next week at 8 p.m. Eastern, zero one hundred Zulu, on this very specific uh, channel. Hope everybody has a wonderful new year, a safe new year. Please come back and join us and continue on with the ham radio activities, contributing with others and sharing a wealth and understanding and, and, and being here with us. Good night, everybody.